Has anyone ever heard of a guy called Dr. Victor Frankl? Any takers? All right, we'll learn a little bit more about him this morning. Prior to World War II, he had spent his entire life researching and writing a book on the importance of finding meaning in life. He was a Jewish psychiatrist and he was arrested by the Nazis. He hid his manuscript in the lining of his coat. But on arriving at the camp, he was searched and it was confiscated. Dr. Frankel wrote about this in his autobiography. This is how he felt at that time. I found myself confronted with the question of whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. He was still wrestling with that question a few days later when the Nazis forced the prisoners to give up their clothes. He goes on, I'll quote, I had to surrender my clothes and in turn inherit the worn-out rags of another ex-inmate. I found in the pocket of that newly acquired coat a single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book. The page read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. He goes on, How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely trying to put them on paper? Later, as Dr. Frankel reflected on his ordeal, he wrote in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, There is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst of conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. Let's pray. Lord, we only have a really short time this morning to engage with your word. Help us, Lord, to be expectant, enthusiastic, and empowered. Amen. All right, let's pick up today's passage from verse 13. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. He's aiming to get there before Pentecost. And he and his team are carrying with them the Jerusalem collection. Fancy name for when they whip the hat round. The Gentile churches chucked in in the hat to raise money for the needy Christians in Judea, most of whom were, not surprisingly, Jewish. Now, we don't know why Paul wants to be in Jerusalem by Pentecost. It's conjecture. But perhaps he thought the crowds and the hoopla would help him sneak in out of anyone's view, especially the Jewish authorities. Now, after all, remember, Paul is not exactly the Jewish community's poster boy when it comes to Judaism. The establishment's objection with Paul is that he's teaching this belief that all you need to do is believe in Jesus and not observe the commandments when it comes to salvation. That's good. And the attitude of the rabbis is that these Jesus people, well, even if some of them are card-carrying Jews, they're going to corrupt Judaism. We can't have that. They've got to go. The attitude of the rabbis is also teamed up a little bit with the Roman officials who have their joint big noses out of joint. They want to arrest Paul, in part because of these riots that seem to follow him around, but also because the Jews just keep banging on about what a pain he is. Anyway, back to the passage. Paul's in a hurry. We did that. So he wants to get 
He, sorry, Paul's in a hurry. So he sails past Ephesus. But as is often the case with this international travel, he gets delayed in a town called Miletus. He's got a few days to kill there. We don't know why he's stuck. It doesn't say. Maybe they needed to put new air in the sails or some technical booty sort of thing. I don't know. But never one to let a chance go by, Paul sends for the elders of the church at Ephesus, which he overshot by about 50k. He hasn't seen them for nearly a year. We'll pick it up there at verse 18, which is the start of the only sermon we have in Acts, which was given to Christians. And apparently the only recorded address by Paul, which Paul actually heard, sorry, which Luke actually heard. Now in this sermon, Paul reminds the elders of his time in Ephesus, in particular that he served the Lord humbly and willingly suffered for the sake of the gospel. He points out that he declared the whole gospel to Jew and Gentile without fear or favour. And that he did this not only in public speeches and debates, but also in private house meetings. Perhaps his point was that he was more concerned about the size of the opportunity than the size of the audience. Paul acknowledges hardships while noting that he did not and will not let the circumstances of his difficulties interfere with the vision of proclaiming the gospel. Acts 20 verses 22 to 24 sum up Paul's, I don't know, MacGyver-like approach to life. This is Paul speaking. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. When you look at our chapter, you'll notice there's a few times where Paul well, put it bluntly, seems to be pretty self-righteous. For example, verses 18 and 19. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you? I serve with great humility. How about verse 20? You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be useful to you? Uh, 34 and 35. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. In everything I did, I showed you that by this type of work we must help the weak. I mean, do you think Paul is showing off? Is he bragging? Well, to answer that question, you need to meet my dad. Uh, He's the one on the left. Dad was born in 1928 in a small country town in New South Wales called Grenfell. One of five, he grew up in a forest about 20 kilometres out of town, left school at 13 and worked in the family sawmill for close to 50 years. That was hard physical work. 48 weeks a year and often six days a week. His second career, after selling the mill in his 60s, was as a school bus driver and he did 900 kilometres a week. Then he finally handed in his bus licence in his 70s. After that he just drove mum nuts at home. Now whilst Dad was no academic, he had, it's occurred to me, um, an incredible insight into the human condition. The first insight that he shared with me is you should never trust a man who wears a bow tie out of choice. 
Over my lifetime, I have found that to be true with two exceptions, circus clowns and the 11th Doctor. The second observation, which is perhaps a little deeper, is that you turn out like the people you hang out with. Now, Dad had never heard of Stockholm Syndrome or Jim Rohn's hypothesis that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with, which in itself is a pretty scary idea. But Dad was right. The Apostle Paul knew this too. When he wrote uh, to the Corinthians in chapter 11, he goes, follow my example as I follow that of Christ. Sorry, I'll just catch up here. When he wrote to the Philippians, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. When he wrote to the Thessalonians, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate me. And so it is in our chapter, in Acts 20, Paul is leaving nothing to chance. There is no silent witness here. He wants to be absolutely, positively, unequivocally certain that the elders didn't miss any of the finer points of his 24-7 living sermon. And Paul's example is bang on the money. Despite beatings, imprisonment, riots, shipwrecks, loneliness, bereavement, ill health, hard work and sleepless nights, Paul stays focused on God and his vision. And what is that vision? Well, I can tell you what it is not. As you can see from Paul's life, the vision of God's kingdom is not a promise that Jesus' followers will avoid or quickly overcome trying times. God does not promise that we will all be healthy, wealthy and prosperous. God's vision is summarised in Acts 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. God's vision is that Jesus' followers, that's us, will bring the gospel to everyone. Persecution, imprisonment, resistance, death will not stop that vision. God will prevail in spite of our hesitance, our mistakes, and in spite of the evil plans of those who oppose him. In fact, God uses those occasions of tragic death and heart-wrenching arrest to propel his vision, sometimes in in surprising ways. Consider the moments after Jesus dies. Here's, Here's Matthew's account. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Bit of trivia here for you. No charge. This might be useful. That sentence, surely he was the son of God, represented the only spoken words that the Roman centurion uttered in the 1970s stage show, Jesus Christ Superstar. Bonus points if you know who that centurion was. An Australian actor called Doug Tassie, who I got to meet, he played that role behind Marsha Hines and he said that having to say that one line every night for a year compelled him to explore his own beliefs as a Jew and ultimately commit his life to Jesus. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have seen that coming. So what is God's vision? Namely, that we Christians will be witnesses to the ends of the earth. What's that look like? If it was anyone else, I wouldn't answer, but Brock's asked a question. Isn't Paul just talking to the elders when he says to get out there and save the world? It's a good question. Why should we assume that it applies to us? Also a good question. After all, just because Jesus told the apostles to grab the donkey on Palm Sunday doesn't mean that all believers should be horse rustlers, does it? It's a fair point. Actually, it's a good question. I like it. Thanks, Brockelheimer. It's good. Sometimes we do extrapolate what the Bible says where we shouldn't. That's true. But, but this time, I actually think it's appropriate. Consider the Great Commission. This is Jesus speaking as recorded by Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I will always be with you to the very end of the age. Okay, now whilst it's true that the Great Commission was given to the apostles, it wasn't only for the apostles. That line, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, certainly includes the command to make disciples. Uh, You can check. I am pretty sure that your Bible doesn't have fine print at the bottom that says, excluding the making of disciples, which is restricted to apostle-grade believers only. Uh, If it does, you should take that book back. I mean, if we're going to take that apostle-only line, we would also need to apply it to the second part of verse 20, that I am always with you, even to the end of the age. Now, hate to tell you, we are all in this together. Acts 1 verse 8 confirms it. You will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witness to the end of the earth. As John Stott argues, we can no more restrict the command to witness then we can restrict the promise of the Spirit. Ah, good second question, Brock. Isn't witnessing for professional Christians only and not us ordinary baked bean believers? Okay. Haven't been called a baked bean believer before, but there you go. Well, where do I start, mate? Dude, it's a good try. It's a good try. But flip back to Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, trick question. What did those non-apostle believers do? Those ordinary baked beans just like Brock Christians do? Verse 4. They went about preaching the word. But apart from being told to evangelise, shouldn't we feel compelled? Consider the stewardship that the gospel imposes on us. Jesus reminds us in Luke that to everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. We have no greater gift than the gospel and we have no greater stewardship than to share the message of the good news with others. Paul expresses it well when he says to the Corinthians, for the love of Jesus controls us. Humankind desperately needs the salvation that Jesus offers. John 3.18 reminds us, whoever believes in him is not condemned. 
as Christians, our awareness that family, friends and strangers will otherwise be eternally separated from God should motivate us to proclaim the hope of Jesus. Similarly, Paul encourages us in his letter to the Philippians to value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests. Witnessing to the people we meet is a way to put the utmost value on their lives, their eternal lives, and to help people find true meaning. Do you recall Dr. Frankel's conclusion in his book, Man's Search for Meaning? Quoting him, There is nothing in the world that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. Isn't that what we see in Paul's example? Isn't that what Paul is saying in verse 24? Prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. If we are to imitate Paul as we're instructed to do, then surely we must also find meaning where Paul finds meaning. I'd be less than honest if I said or gave you the impression that I haven't previously and won't again look for meaning elsewhere. I'm finding this particularly challenging at the moment as I approach retirement. I've worked for the same employer for 32 years and I'm wondering what my response is going to be to that dreaded first question, what do you do? I have considered using the opening lines of the Westminster Shorter Catechism but I'm not sure if the bigger value is ready for the answer. I glorify God and enjoy him forever. How about you, buddy? Though, as a discussion starter, you never know. A friend of mine used to joke that her preferred introductory line was, Hi, I'm Joan. Have you been washed in the blood of the lamb? Her reasoning being that life is short, just cut to the chase. Maybe I could use uh, C.S. Lewis's trilemma. G'day, I'm Simon. Which do you say he was? Liar, lunatic or Lord? How about something more philosophical? Hi, I'm Simon. Have you ever wondered why the church asks for money and yet they say it's the root of all evil? How about something edgy? Hi, I'm Simon. I asked God for a bike yesterday. I know he doesn't work that way, so I nicked one and asked for forgiveness. Do you want to know how that works? <laughs> but the witty, well-constructed one-liner isn't what Paul models for us. When it comes to reaching out, there are four qualities that stand out to me from today's passage. If you're ready, we shall hurtle through them. Number one, Paul was consistent. Verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you. All aspects of Paul's life reflected the grace and teaching and values of the gospel. So should our day-to-day lives. Our speech, our interests, our attitude, our worldview, our speeding fines, our hemline, our business dealings, our work, our tax return, our music, and dare I say it, our Facebook posts. Number two, Paul was resilient. Verse 19, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing. I mean, nothing put Paul off. Nothing 
changed his desire to serve God. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul had a tattoo that said, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Remember, Paul is the guy who wrote to the Romans in what we call chapter 5. He wrote this, We rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope, and hope does not disappoint us. Paul's example is not that life is without storms, but rather that the storms do not weaken his focus on God. In fact, the storms strengthen it. Number three, dare I say it, Paul was persistent. Anywhere there was an open mic, he grabbed it. He was always prepared to share the gospel. But as we see from his sermon that we've just looked at, he also lived it. I think he had a tattoo on the other shoulder that said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. And don't underestimate the power of a life centred on Jesus. Even an imperfect, some may say disaster-ridden life like Paul's. Or perhaps yours. Maybe you've heard of a guy called Malcolm, Malcolm Muggeridge. Prominent journalist, author, spy, outspoken, womanising agnostic who's been described as a serial groper. It was observing Mother Teresa's life that led him to Jesus in his 60s. But he points out that it was not just her life's selfless works. He wrote that it was also the fact that she shared that she had experienced times of darkness, just as he did. Number four, last one, Paul was insistent. Verse 21, I have declared to both Jew and Gentile they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord. Paul presented one message and he did it with a passion, namely, we are all sinners and we all need God. There is no compromise, there is no alternative, there is no concession. He nails it in 28 words when he writes to the Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by his grace. So perhaps instead of worrying about how I'll introduce myself in retirement, I should be reflecting on that overall retirement package. Am I living a life that consistently reflects Jesus' teaching? Am I living a life that resiliently looks to the goodness of God, regardless of what the world chucks at me? Am I living a life that persistently preaches the gospel using words only if absolutely necessary? And am I living a life that despite what political correctness, workplace inclusiveness or the mainstream media might say, that there is only one solution to man's dilemma?